Thank you for that touching group of precious songs for us. My beloved brethren, my desire this evening is to share some counsel about decisions and choices. When I was a young lawyer in the San Francisco Bay Area, our firm did some legal work for the company that produced the Charlie Brown holiday TV specials. I became a fan of Charles Schultz and his creation, Peanuts, with Charlie Brown, Lucy, Snoopy, and other wonderful characters. One of my favorite comic strips involved Lucy. As I remember it, Charlie Brown's baseball team was in an important game. Lucy was playing right field, and a high fly ball was hit to her. The bases were loaded, and it was the last of the ninth inning. If Lucy caught the ball, her team would win. If Lucy dropped the ball, the other team would win. As could only happen in a comic strip, the entire team surrounded Lucy as the ball came down. Lucy was thinking, if I catch the ball, I will be the hero. If I don't, I will be the goat. The ball came down, and as her teammates eagerly looked on, Lucy dropped the ball. Charlie Brown threw his glove to the ground in disgust. Lucy then looked at her teammates, put her hands on her hips, and said, How do you expect me to catch the ball when I am worried about our country's foreign policy? This was one of many fly balls Lucy dropped through the years, and she had a new excuse each time. While always humorous, Lucy's excuses were rationalizations. They were untrue reasons for her failure to catch the ball. During the ministry of President Thomas S. Monson, he has often taught that decisions determine destiny. In that spirit, my counsel tonight is to rise above any rationalizations that prevent us from making righteous decisions, especially with respect to serving Jesus Christ. In Isaiah, we are taught we must refuse the evil and choose the good. I believe it is of particular importance in our day, when Satan is raging in the hearts of men in so many new and subtle ways, that our choices and decisions be made carefully, consistent with the goals and objectives by which we profess to live. We need unequivocal commitment to the commandments and strict adherence to sacred covenants. When we allow rationalizations to prevent us from temple endowments, worthy missions, and temple marriage, they are particularly harmful. It is heartbreaking when we profess belief in these goals, yet neglect the everyday conduct required to achieve them. Some young people profess their goal is to be married in the temple but do not date temple-worthy individuals. To be honest, some don't even date, period. You single men, the longer you remain single after an appropriate age and maturity, the more comfortable you can become, but the more uncomfortable you ought to become. Please get anxiously engaged in spiritual and social activities compatible with your goal of a temple marriage. Some postpone marriage until education is complete and a job obtained. While widely accepted in the world, this reasoning does not demonstrate faith, comply with counsel of modern prophets, and is not compatible with sound doctrine. I recently met a fine teenage young man. His goals were to go on a mission, obtain an education, 
marry in the temple, and have a faithful, happy family. I was very pleased with his goals, but during further conversation it became evident that his conduct and the choices he was making were not consistent with his goals. I felt he genuinely wanted to go on a mission and was avoiding serious transgressions that would prohibit a mission, but his day-to-day conduct was not preparing him for the physical, emotional, social, intellectual, and spiritual challenges he would face. He had not learned to work hard. He was not serious about school or seminary. He attended church, but he had not read the Book of Mormon. He was spending a large amount of time on video games and social media. He seemed to think that showing up for his mission would be sufficient. Young men, please recommit to worthy conduct and serious preparation to be emissaries of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My concern is not only about the big tipping-point decisions, but also the middle ground, the workaday world, and seemingly ordinary decisions where we spend most of our time. In these areas, we need to emphasize moderation, balance, and especially wisdom. It is important to rise above rationalizations and make the best choices. A wonderful example of the need for moderation, balance, and wisdom is the use of the Internet. It can be used to do missionary outreach, to assist with priesthood responsibility, to find precious ancestors for sacred temple ordinances, and much, much more. The potential for good is enormous. We also know that it can transmit much that is evil, including pornography, digital cruelty, and anonymous yakking. It can also perpetuate foolishness. As Brother Randall L. Ridd poignantly taught at the last General Conference, speaking of the Internet, you can get caught up in endless loops of triviality that waste your time and degrade your potential. Distractions and opposition to righteousness are not just on the Internet. They are everywhere. They affect not just the youth, but all of us. We live in a world that is literally in commotion. We are surrounded by obsessive portrayals of fun and games and immoral and dysfunctional lives. These are presented as normal conduct in much of the media. Elder David A. Bednar recently cautioned members to be authentic in the use of social media. A prominent thought leader, Arthur C. Brooks, has emphasized this point. He observes that when using using social media, we tend to broadcast the smiling details of our lives, but not the hard times at school or work. We portray an incomplete life, sometimes in self-aggrandizing or a fake way. We share this life, and then we consume the almost exclusively fake lives of our social media friends. Brooks asserts, How could it not make you feel worse to spend part of your time pretending to be happier than you are and the other part of your time seeing how much happier others seem to be than you? Sometimes it feels like we are drowning in frivolous foolishness, nonsensical noise, and continuous contention. When we turn down the volume and examine the substance, there is very little that will assist us in our eternal quest toward righteous goals. One father wisely responds to his children with their numerous requests to participate in these distractions. He simply asks them, Will this make you a better person? 
When we rationalize wrong choices, big or small, which are inconsistent with the restored gospel, we lose the blessings and protections we need and often become ensnared in sin or simply lose our way. I am particularly concerned with foolishness and being obsessed with every new thing. In the Church, we encourage and celebrate truth and knowledge of every kind. But when culture, knowledge, and social mores are separated from God's plan of happiness and the essential role of Jesus Christ, there is an inevitable disintegration of society. In our day, despite unprecedented gains in many areas, especially science and communication, essential basic values have eroded and overall happiness and well-being have diminished. When the Apostle Paul was invited to speak on Mars Hill in Athens, he found some of the same intellectual pretension and absence of true wisdom that exists today. In Acts we read this account, For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Paul's emphasis was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When the crowd realized the religious nature of his message, some mocked him. Others essentially dismissed him, saying, We will hear thee again of this matter. Paul left Athens without any success. Dean Frederick Farrar wrote of this visit, At Athens he founded no church. To Athens he wrote no epistle. And in Athens, often as he passed its neighborhood, he never set foot again. I believe Elder Dallin H. Oaks' inspired message distinguishing between good, better, best provides an effective way to evaluate choices and priorities. Many choices are not inherently evil, but if they absorb all of our time and keep us from the best choices, then they become insidious. Even worthwhile endeavors need evaluation in order to determine if they have become distractions from the best goals. I had a memorable discussion with my father when I was a teenager. He did not believe enough young people were focused on or preparing for long-term important goals like employment and providing for families. Meaningful study and preparatory work experience were always at the top of my father's recommended priorities. He appreciated that extracurricular activities like debate and student government might have a direct connection with some of my important goals. He was less certain about the expensive, extensive time I spent playing football, basketball, baseball, and track. He acknowledged that athletics could build strength, endurance, and teamwork but asserted that perhaps concentrating on one sport for a shorter time would be better. In his view, sports were good, but not the best for me. He was concerned that some sports were about building local celebrity or fame at the expense of more important long-term goals. Given this history, one of the reasons I like the account of Lucy playing baseball as that, in my father's view, I should have been studying foreign policy and not worrying about whether I was going to catch the ball. I should make it clear that my mother loved sports. It would have taken a hospitalization for her to miss one of my games. I had decided to follow my dad's advice and not play intercollegiate sports in college. Then our high school football coach informed me that the Stanford football coach wanted to have lunch with me and Merlin Olson. Those of you who are younger may not know Merlin. 
He was an incredible All-American tackle on the Logan High School football team where I played quarterback safety and returned kickoffs and punts. In high school, Merlin was recruited by most football powers across the nation. In college, he won the Outland Trophy as the nation's best interior lineman. Merlin was ultimately the third overall pick in the National Football League draft and played in an amazing 14 consecutive Pro Bowls. He was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1982. The lunch with the Stanford coach was at the Bluebird Restaurant in Logan, Utah. After we shook hands, he never once made eye contact with me. He talked directly to Merlin but ignored me. At the end of the lunch, for the first time, he turned towards me, but he could not remember my name. He then informed Merlin, if you choose Stanford and want to bring your friend with you, he has good enough grades and it could probably be arranged. This experience confirmed for me that I should follow my dad's wise counsel. <laughs> my intent is not to discourage participation in sports or the use of the Internet or other worthwhile activities young people enjoy. They are the kind of activities that require moderation, balance, and wisdom. When used wisely, they enrich our lives. However, I encourage everyone, young and old, to review goals and objectives and strive to exercise greater discipline. Our daily conduct and choices should be consistent with our goals. We need to rise above rationalizations and distractions. It is especially important to make choices consistent with our covenants to serve Jesus Christ in righteousness. We must not take our eyes off of or drop that ball for any reason. This life is the time to prepare to meet God. We are a happy, joyous people. We appreciate a good sense of humor and treasure unstructured time with friends and family. But we need to recognize that there is a seriousness of purpose that must undergird our approach to life and all our choices. Distractions and rationalizations that limit progress are harmful enough, but when they diminish faith in Jesus Christ and His Church, they are tragic. My prayer is that as a body of priesthood holders, our conduct will be consistent with the noble purposes required of those who are in the service of the Master. In all things we should remember that being valiant in the testimony of Jesus is the great dividing test between the celestial and the terrestrial kingdoms. We want to be found on the celestial side of that divide. As one of His apostles, I bear fervent testimony of the reality of the Atonement and the divinity of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Brethren, we are assembled as a mighty body of the priesthood, both here in the Conference Center and in locations throughout the world. I am honored, yet humbled, by the responsibility which is mine to address a few remarks to you. I pray for the Spirit of the Lord to attend me as I do so. Seventy-five years ago, on February 14, 1939, in Hamburg, Germany, a public holiday was celebrated amid fervent speeches, cheering throngs, and the playing of patriotic anthems. The new battleship Bismarck was put out to sea by the River Elbe. 
This, the most powerful vessel afloat, was a breathtaking spectacle of armor and machinery. Construction required more than 57,000 blueprints for the 380-millimeter triple turret radar-controlled guns. The vessel featured 28,000 miles of electrical circuits. It weighed over 35,000 tons. An armor plate provided maximum safety. Majestic in appearance, gigantic in size, awesome in firepower, the mighty Colossus was considered then unsinkable. The Bismarck's appointment with destiny came more than two years later, when on May 24, 1941, the two most powerful warships in the British Navy, the Prince of Wales and the Hood, engaged in battle the Bismarck and the German cruiser Prince Eugen. Within five minutes, the Bismarck had sent to the depths of the Atlantic the Hood and all but three men of a crew over 1,400. The other British battleship, the Prince of Wales, had suffered heavy damage and turned away. Over the next three days, the Bismarck was engaged again and again by British warships and aircraft. In all, the British concentrated the strength of five battleships, two aircraft carriers, 11 cruisers, and 21 destroyers in an effort to find and to sink the mighty Bismarck. During these battles, shell after shell inflicted only superficial damage on the Bismarck. Was it unsinkable, after all? Then a torpedo scored a lucky hit, which jammed the Bismarck's rudder. Repair efforts proved fruitless. With guns primed and the crews at ready, the Bismarck could only steer a slow circle. Just beyond the reach was the powerful German Air Force. The Bismarck could not reach the safety of home port. Neither could provide the needed haven, for the Bismarck had lost the ability to steer a charted course. No rudder, no help, no port. The end drew near. British guns blazed as the German crew scuttled and sank the once seemingly indestructible vessel. The hungry waves of the Atlantic first lapped at the sides and then swallowed. The pride of the German Navy, the Bismarck, was no more. Like the Bismarck, each of us is a miracle of engineering. Our creation, however, was not limited by human genius. Man can devise the most complex machines, cannot give them life or bestow upon them the powers of reason and judgment. These are divine gifts bestowed only by God. Like the vital rudder of a ship, brethren, we have been provided a way to determine the direction we travel. The lighthouse of the Lord beckons to all as we sail the seas of life. Our purpose is to steer an undeviating course forward toward our desired goal, even the celestial kingdom of God. A man without a purpose is like a ship without a rudder, never likely to reach home port. To us comes the signal, chart your course, set your sail, position your rudder, and proceed. As with the mighty Bismarck, so it is with man. The thrust of the turbines and the power of the propellers are useless 
without that sense of direction and harnessing of the energy, the direction of the power provided by the rudder, hidden from view, relatively small in size, but absolutely essential in function. Our Father provided the sun, the moon, and the stars, heavenly galaxies to guide mariners who sail the lanes of the sea. To us, as we walk the pathway of life, He provides a clear map and points the way toward our desired destination. He cautions, beware the detours, the pitfalls, the traps. We cannot be deceived by those who would lead us astray, those clever pied pipers of sin beckoning here or there. Instead, we pause to pray. We listen to that still, small voice which speaks to the depths of our souls, the Master's gentle invitation, Come, follow me. Yet there are those who do not hear, who will not obey, who prefer to walk a path of their own making. Too often they succumb to the temptations which surround all of us and which can appear so enticing. As bearers of the priesthood, we have been placed on earth in troubled times. We live in a complex world with currents of conflict everywhere to be found. Political schemes ruin the stability of nations. Desperate to grasp for power and segments of society seem forever downtrodden, deprived of opportunity, and left with a feeling of failure. The sophistries of men ring in our ears and sin surrounds us. Ours is the responsibility to be worthy of all the glorious blessings our Father in Heaven has in store for us. Wherever we go, our priesthood goes with us. Are we standing in holy places? Please, before you put yourself and your priesthood in jeopardy by venturing into places or participating in activities which are not worthy of you or of that priesthood, pause to consider the consequences. We who have been ordained to the priesthood of God can make a difference when we maintain our personal purity and honor our priesthood. We become righteous examples for others to follow. The Apostle Paul admonished, Be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, and faith and purity. He also wrote that the followers of Christ should be as lights in the world. Providing an example of righteousness can help to illuminate an increasingly dark world. Many of you will remember President N. Eldon Tanner, who served as a counselor to four presidents of the Church. He provided an undeviating example of righteousness throughout his career in industry, during service in the government in Canada, and as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He gave us this inspired counsel, and I quote, Nothing will bring greater joy and success than to live according to the teachings of the gospel. Be an example. Be an influence for good. 
Close quote. He continued, every one of us has been foreordained for some work as God's chosen servant on whom he has seen fit to confer the priesthood and power to act in his name. Always remember that people are looking to you for leadership, and you are influencing the lives of individuals either for good or for bad. Which influence will be felt for generations to come?" End quote. We are strengthened by the truth that the greatest force in the world today is the power of God as it works through man. To sail safety and safely, the seas of mortality, we need the guidance of that eternal mariner, even the great Jehovah. We reach out, we reach up to obtain heavenly help. A well-known example of one who did not reach upward is that of Cain, son of Adam and Eve. Powerful in potential, but weak of will. Cain permitted greed, envy, disobedience, and even murder to jam that personal rudder which would have guided him to safety and exaltation. The downward gaze replaced the upward look. Cain fell. In another time, and by a wicked king, a servant of God was tested. Aided by the inspiration of heaven, Daniel interpreted for the king the writing on the wall concerning the proffered rewards, even a royal robe, a necklace of gold and political power, Daniel said, Let thy gifts be to thyself, and give thy rewards to another. Close quote. Great riches and power have been offered to Daniel, rewards representing the things of the world and not of God. Daniel resisted and remained faithful. Later, when Daniel worshipped God despite a decree declaring such to be forbidden, he was thrown into a den of lions. The biblical account tells us that the following morning, and I quote, Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him because he believed in God, end quote. In a time of critical need, Daniel's determination to steer a steady course yielded divine protection and provided a sanctuary of safety. Such protection and safety can be ours as we also steer that steady course toward our eternal home. The clock of history, like the sands of the hourglass, marks the passage of time. A new cast occupies the stage of life. The problems of our day loop ominously before us. Throughout the history of the world, Satan has worked tirelessly for the destruction of the followers of the, followers of the Savior. If we succumb to his enticings, we, like the mighty Bismarck, will lose that rudder which can guide us to safety. Instead, surrounded by the sophistication of modern living, we look heavenward for that unfailing sense of direction that we might chart and follow a wise and proper course. Our Heavenly Father, will not leave our sincere petition 
unanswered. As we seek heavenly help, our rudder, unlike that of the Bismarck, will not fail. As we venture forth on our individual voyages, may we sail safely the seas of life. May we have the courage of a Daniel that we might remain true and faithful despite the sin and temptation which surround us. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, the brother of Nephi, who, when confronted by one who sought in every possible way to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Close quote. With the rudder of faith guiding our passage, brethren, we too will find our way safely home, home to God, to dwell with Him eternally. That such may be so for each of us, I pray, in the sacred name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Amen. I am grateful to be gathered with the priesthood of God, which stretches across the world. I appreciate your faith, your service, and your prayers. My message tonight is about the Aaronic Priesthood. It is also to all of us who help in the realization of the Lord's promises for those who hold what is described in Scripture as the lesser priesthood. It is also called the preparatory priesthood. It is that glorious preparation about which I will speak tonight. The Lord's plan for His work is filled with preparation. He prepared the earth for us to experience the tests and the opportunities of mortality. While we are here, we are in what the scriptures call a preparatory state. The prophet Alma described the crucial importance of that preparation for eternal life, where we may live forever in families with God the Father and Jesus Christ. He explained the need for preparation this way, quote, And we see that death comes upon mankind, yea, the death which has been spoken of by Amulek, which is the temporal death. Nevertheless, there was a space prepared unto man in which he might repent. Therefore, this life became a probationary state, a time to prepare to meet God, a time to prepare for that endless state which has been spoken of by us, which is after the resurrection of the dead." Close quote. Just as the time we have been given to live in mortality is to prepare to meet God, the time we are given to serve in the Aaronic Priesthood is an opportunity to prepare us to learn how to give crucial help to others. Just as the Lord gives the help we require to pass the test of mortal life, He also sends us help in our priesthood preparation. My message is to those who the Lord sends to help prepare as much as it is to those who hold the Aaronic Priesthood. I speak to fathers, I speak to bishops, and I speak to those of the Melchizedek Priesthood 
who are trusted to be companions and teachers of young men who are in priesthood preparation. I speak in praise and in gratitude for many of you across the world and across time. I would be remiss if I did not speak of a branch president and a bishop of my youth. I became a deacon at the age of 12 in a little branch in the eastern part of the United States. The branch was so tiny that my older brother and I were its only Aaronic priesthood holders until my father, who was the branch president, invited a middle-aged man to join the Church. The new convert received the Aaronic priesthood and with it a call to watch over the Aaronic priesthood. I still remember as if it were yesterday. I can recall the beautiful fall leaves as that new convert accompanied my brother and me to do something for a widow. I don't remember what the project was, but I do remember the feeling that the priesthood power joined in doing what I later learned the Lord had said we must all do to have our sins forgiven and so be prepared to see Him. As I look back now, I feel gratitude for a branch president who called a new convert to help the Lord prepare two boys who would in turn someday be bishops charged to care for the poor and the needy and also to preside over the preparatory priesthood. I was still a deacon when our family moved to a large ward in Utah. It was the first time I had felt the power of a full quorum in the Aaronic Priesthood. In fact, it was the first time I saw one. And later, it was the first time I felt the power and the blessing of a bishop presiding in a priest quorum. The bishop called me to be his first assistant in the priest quorum. I remember that he taught the quorum himself, busy as he was with other gifted men whom he could have called to teach us. He had the chairs in the classroom arranged in a circle. He had me sit in the chair next to him to his right. I could look over his shoulder as he taught. He looked down occasionally at the carefully typed notes in the little leather binder on his lap and at the well-worn and marked scriptures he had open on the other knee. I can remember the thrill as he recounted the stories of bravery from the book of Daniel, which was his favorite, and his testimony of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I will always remember how the Lord calls companions carefully chosen for His priesthood holders in preparation. My bishop had powerful counselors, and for reasons I did not understand then, more than once he called me on the phone at home and said, Hal, I need you to go with me as a companion to make some visits. Once it was to take me with him to the home of a widow living alone and without any food in the house. On the way home, he stopped his car, opened his scriptures, and told me why he had treated that widow as if she had the power not only to care for herself, but would at some time in the future be able to help others. Another visit was to a man long absent from the Church. 
My bishop invited him back to be with the saints. I felt his love for what seemed to me an unlovable and rebellious enemy. In fact, he—well, I won't say what he did, but he he kicked a beer can underneath the, the sofa so the bishop wouldn't see it. And I remember thinking, this is not a very likely success. <laughs> On yet another occasion, we visited a home where two little girls were sent to meet us at the door by their alcoholic parents. The little girls said through the screen door that their mother and father were asleep. The bishop kept talking to them, smiling and praising their goodness and their bravery for what seemed to me 10 minutes or more. As I walked away at his side, he said quietly, that was a good visit. Those little girls will never forget that we came. Two of the blessings that a senior priesthood companion can give are trust and an example of caring. I saw that when my son was given a home teaching companion who had vastly more priesthood experience than he did. His senior companion had been a mission president, a missionary twice, and had served in other leadership positions. Before they were to visit one of their assigned families—I think it was their first visit—that seasoned priesthood leader asked to visit my son in our home beforehand. They allowed me to listen. The senior companion opened with prayer, asking for help. Then he said something like this to my son, I think we should teach a lesson that will sound to this family like a call to repentance. I think they won't take it very well from me. I think they would take the message better from you <laughs> than they would from me. How do you feel about that? I can still <laughs> I remember the, the terror in my son's eyes. Uh, I can still feel the happiness of that moment when my son accepted the trust. It was not by accident that the bishop put that companionship together. It was by careful preparation that the senior companion had learned about the feelings of that family they were about to teach. It was by inspiration that he felt to step back to trust an inexperienced youth to call older children of God to repentance and to safety. I don't know the outcome of their visit, but I do know that a bishop, a Melchizedek priesthood holder, and the Lord were preparing a boy to be a priesthood man and someday a bishop. Now, such stories of success in priesthood preparation are familiar to you from what you have seen and what you have experienced in your own lives. You have known and have been such bishops, companions, and parents. You have seen the hand of the Lord in your preparation for the priesthood duties, which He knew would lie ahead of you. All of us in the priesthood have an obligation to help the Lord prepare others. There are some things we can do that could matter most even more powerful than using words in our teaching the doctrine will be our teaching the doctrine will be our examples of living the doctrine paramount in our priesthood service is inviting people to come unto Christ by faith repentance baptism and receiving the holy ghost 
President Monson, for instance, has given sermons to stir the heart on all those doctrines. But what I know of what he did with people and missionaries and friends of the Church when presiding over the mission in Toronto motivate me to action. In priesthood preparation, show me counts more than tell me. That is why the scriptures are so important to prepare us in the priesthood. They are filled with examples. I feel as if I can see Alma following the angel's command and then hurrying back to teach the wicked people in Ammonihah who had rejected him. I can feel the cold in the jail cell when the prophet Joseph was told by God to take courage and that he was watched over. With those scripture pictures in mind, we can be prepared to endure in our service when it seems hard. A father or a bishop or a senior home teaching companion who shows that he trusts a young priesthood holder can change his life. My father was once asked by a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles to write a short paper on science and religion. My father was a famous scientist and a faithful priesthood holder. But I can still remember the moment he handed me the paper he had written and said, Here, before I send this to the Twelve, I want you to read it. You will know if it is right. (laughs) He was 32 years older than me and immeasurably more wise and intelligent. I still am strengthened by that trust from a great father and a priesthood man. I knew that his trust was not in me, but that God could and would tell me what was true. You seasoned companions can bless a young priesthood holder in preparation whenever you can show him that kind of trust. It will help him trust the gentle feeling of inspiration for himself when it comes as he someday places his hands to seal the blessing to heal a child the doctors say will die. That trust has helped me more than once. Our success in preparing others in the priesthood will come in proportion to how much we love them. That will be especially true when we must correct them. Think of the moment when an ironic priesthood holder, perhaps at the sacrament table, makes a mistake in performing an ordinance. That's a serious matter. Sometimes the error requires public correction with a possibility of resentment, a feeling of humiliation, or even of being rejected. You will remember the Lord's counsel, quote, reproving betimes with sharpness when moved upon by the Holy Ghost and then showing forth afterwards an increase of love towards him whom thou hast reproved, lest he esteem thee to be his enemy, close quote. The word increase has special meaning in preparing priesthood holders when they need correction. The word suggests an increase of a love that was already there. The showing forth is about the increase. Those of us who are preparing priesthood holders will certainly see them make mistakes before they receive your correction. They must have felt of your love early and steadily. They must have felt your genuine praise before they will accept your correction. The Lord Himself held those of the lesser priesthood with a regard that honors their potential and their value to Him. Listen to this. 
open quote upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah. I confer the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys of the ministry of angels and of the gospel of repentance and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. And this shall never be taken again from the earth until the sons of Levi do offer again offering unto the Lord in righteousness. The Aaronic priesthood is an appendage to the greater Melchizedek priesthood. As the president of all the priesthood, the president of the Church presides over the preparatory priesthood as well. His messages over the years of going to the rescue fit perfectly the mandate to take the gospel of repentance and baptism into the lives of others. Quorums of deacons, teachers, and priests counsel regularly to draw every member of the quorum to the Lord. Presidencies assign members to reach out in faith and love. Deacons pass the sacrament with reverence and with faith that members will feel the effect of the Atonement and resolve to keep commandments as they partake of those sacred emblems. Teachers and priests pray with their companions to fulfill the charge to watch over the Church person by person. And those companionships pray together as they learn the needs and the hopes of heads of families. As they do, they are being prepared for the great day when they will preside as a father in faith in a family of their own. I testify that all who serve together in the priesthood are preparing a people for the coming of the Lord to His Church. God the Father lives. I know, I know that Jesus is the Christ and that He loves us. President Thomas S. Monson is the Lord's living prophet. I so testify in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Yes, we thank our Heavenly Father for a prophet. We're grateful for the prophet Joel Smith and how we love our President and Prophet, President Thomas S. Monson. You should hear President Monson praying for the members of the Church and especially for the priesthood. What confidence and trust he has in the priesthood around the globe, this vast audience of faithful brethren. My dear brethren, it was our beloved Savior's final night in mortality. The evening before he would offer himself a ransom for all mankind. As he broke bread with his disciples, he said something that must have filled their hearts with great alarm and deep sadness. One of you shall betray me, he told them. The disciples didn't question the truth of what he said, nor did they look around, point to someone else, and ask, Is it him? Instead, they were exceeding sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? I wonder what each of us would do if we were asked that question by the Savior. Would we look at those around us and say in our hearts, he's probably talking about Brother Johnson, 
I've always wondered about him. <laughs> or, I'm glad Brother Brown is here. He really needs to hear this message. Or, would we, like those disciples of old, look inward and ask that penetrating question, Is it I? In these simple words, Lord, is it I, lies the beginning of wisdom and the pathway to personal conversion and lasting change. Once there was a man who enjoyed taking evening walks around his neighborhood. He particularly looked forward to walking past his neighbor's house. This neighbor kept his, law, his lawn perfectly manicured, flowers always in bloom, the trees healthy and shady. It was obvious that the neighbor made every effort to have a beautiful lawn. But one day, as the man was walking past his neighbor's house, he noticed in the middle of this beautiful lawn a single enormous yellow dandelion weed. It looked so out of place that it surprised him. Why didn't his neighbor pull it out? Couldn't he see it? Didn't he know that the dandelion could cast seeds that would give root to dozens of additional weeds? This solitary dandelion bothered him beyond description, and he wanted to do something about it. Should he just pluck it out or spray it with weed killer? Perhaps if he went under cover of night, he could remove it secretly. <laughs> These thoughts totally occupied his mind as he walked toward his own home. He entered his house without even glancing at his own front yard, which was blanketed with hundreds of yellow dandelions. Does this story remind us of the words of the, words of the Savior? Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? First cast thou the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. This business of beams and motes seems to be closely related to our inability to see ourselves clearly. I'm not sure why we're able to diagnose and recommend remedies for other people's ills so well, while we often have difficulty seeing our own. Some years ago, there was a news story about a man who believed that if he rubbed lemon juice on his face, it would make him invisible to cameras. So he put lemon juice all over his face, went out and robbed two banks. Not much later, he was arrested when his image was broadcast over the evening news. When police showed the man the videos of himself from the security cameras, he couldn't believe his eyes. But I had lemon juice on my face, he protested. When a scientist at Cornell University heard about this story, he was intrigued. 
that a man could be so painfully unaware of his own incompetence. To determine whether this was a general problem, two researchers invited college students to participate in a series of tests on various life skills and then asked them to rate how they did. The students who performed poorly were the least accurate at evaluating their own performance, some of them estimating their scores to be five times higher than they actually were. This study has been replicated in numerous ways, confirming over and over again the same conclusion. Many of us have a difficult time seeing ourselves as we truly are. And even successful people overestimate their own contribution and underestimate the contributions that others make. It might not be so significant to overestimate how well we drive a car or how far we can drive a golf ball. But when we start believing that our contributions at home, at work, and at church are greater than they actually are, we blind ourselves to blessings and opportunities to improve ourselves in significant and profound ways. An acquaintance of mine used to live in a ward with some of the highest statistics in the church. Attendance was high. Home teaching numbers were high. Primary children were always well-behaved. Ward dinners included fantastic food that members rarely spilled on the meeting house floor. <laughs> and I think there were never any arguments at church ball. My friend and his wife were subsequently called on a mission. When they returned three years later, this couple was astonished to learn that during the time they were away serving, 11 marriages ended in divorce. Although the ward had every outward indication of faithfulness and strength, something unfortunate was happening in the hearts and lives of the members. And the troubling thing is that this situation is not unique. Such terrible and often unnecessary things happen when members of the Church become disengaged from gospel principles. They may appear on the outside to be disciples of Jesus Christ, but on the inside, their hearts have separated from their Savior and His teachings. They have gradually turned away from the things of the Spirit and moved toward the things of the world. Once worthy priesthood holders start to tell themselves that the Church is a good thing for women and children, but not for them. Or some are convinced that their busy schedules or unique circumstances make them exempt from the daily acts of devotion and service that would keep them close to the Spirit. In this age of self-justification and narcissism, 
it is easy to become quite creative at coming up with excuses for not regularly approaching God in prayer, procrastinating the study of the scriptures, avoiding church meetings and family home evenings, or paying an honest tithe and offerings. My dear brethren, will you please look inside your hearts and ask the simple question, Lord, is it I? Have you disengaged even slightly from the gospel of the blessed God which was committed to your trust? Have you allowed the God of this world to darken your minds to the light of the glorious gospel of Christ? My beloved friends, my dear brethren, ask yourself, where is my treasure? Is your heart set on the convenient things of this world, or is it focused on the teachings of the diligent Jesus Christ? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Does the Spirit of God dwell in your hearts? Are you rooted and grounded in the love of God and of your fellow man? Do you devote sufficient time and creativity to bringing happiness to your marriage and family? Do you give your energies to the sublime goal of comprehending and living the breadth and length and depth and height of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ? Brethren, if it is your great desire to cultivate Christ-like attributes of faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, brotherly kindness, godliness, charity, humility, and service, Heavenly Father will make you an instrument in His hands unto the salvation of many souls. Brethren, none of us likes to admit when we are drifting off the right course. Often we try to avoid looking deeply into our souls and confronting our weaknesses, limitations, and fears. Consequently, when we do examine our lives, we look through the filter of biases, excuses, and stories we tell ourselves in order to justify unworthy thoughts and actions. But being able to see ourselves clearly is essential to our spiritual growth and well-being. If our weaknesses and shortcomings remain obscured in the shadows, then the redeeming power of the Savior cannot heal them and make them strength. Ironically, our blindness toward our human weaknesses will also make us blind to the divine potential that our Father yearns to nurture within each of us. So how can we shine the pure light of God's truth into our souls and see ourselves as He sees us? May I suggest that the Holy Scriptures and the talks given at General Conference 
are an effective mirror we can hold up for self-examination. As you hear or read the words of the ancient and modern prophets, refrain from thinking about how the words apply to someone else and ask the simple question, Lord, is it I? We must approach our eternal Father with broken hearts and teachable minds. We must be willing to learn and to change. And oh, how much we gain by committing to live the life of our Heavenly Father intends for us. Those who do not wish to learn and change probably will not. And most likely will begin to wonder whether the Church has anything to offer for them. But those who want to improve and progress, those who learn of the Savior and desire to be like Him, those who humble themselves as a little child and seek to bring their thoughts and actions into harmony with our Father in Heaven, they will experience the miracles of the Savior's Atonement. They will surely feel God's resplendent spirit. They will taste the indescribable joy that is the fruit of a meek and humble heart. They will be blessed with a desire and dis discipline to become true disciples of Jesus Christ. Over the course of my life, I have had the opportunity to rub shoulders with some of the most competent and intelligent men and women this world has to offer. When I was younger, I was impressed by those who were educated, accomplished, successful, and applauded by the world. But over the years, I have come to the realization that I am far more impressed by those wonderful and blessed souls who are truly good and without guile. And isn't that what the gospel is all about and does for us? It is the good news, and it helps us to become good. The words of the Apostle James apply to us today. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Brethren, we must put aside our pride, see beyond our vanity, and in humility ask, Lord, is it I? And if the Lord's answer happens to be, yes, my son, there are things you must improve, things I can help you to overcome, I pray that we will accept this answer humbly acknowledge our sins and shortcomings and then change our ways by becoming better husbands, better fathers, better sons. May we from this time forward seek with all our might to walk steadfastly in the Savior's blessed way, for seeing ourselves clearly is the beginning of wisdom. As we do so, our bountiful God will lead us by the hand. We will be made strong and blessed from on high. My beloved friends, 
the first step on this wondrous and fulfilling path of true discipleship starts with our asking the simple question, Lord, is it I? Of this I testify and leave you my blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My dear brethren, I love the priesthood, and I love being with you. I am so deeply grateful that we can serve together in this great cause. We live in remarkable times. Miraculous advances in medicine, science, and technology have improved the quality of life for many. Yet there is also evidence of great human suffering and distress. In addition to wars and rumors of wars, an increase in natural disasters, including floods, fires, earthquakes, and disease, is impacting the lives of millions worldwide. Church leadership is aware of and vigilant regarding the well-being of God's children everywhere. When and where possible, Church emergency resources are provided to respond to those in need. For example, last November, Typhoon Haiyan hit the island nation of the Philippines. A Category 5 super typhoon, Haiyan left in its wake extensive destruction and suffering. Complete cities were destroyed, many lives were lost, millions of homes were severely damaged or destroyed, and basic services such as water, sewer, and electricity ceased functioning. Church resources were made available in the very early hours following this disaster. Church members living in the Philippines rallied to the rescue of their brothers and sisters by providing food, water, clothing, and hygiene kits to members and non-members alike. Church meeting houses became places of refuge to thousands of the homeless. Under the leadership of the area presidency and local priesthood leaders, many of whom had lost everything they had, Assessments were made as to the condition and safety of all members. Inspired plans began to take shape to help restore members to acceptable living conditions and self-reliance. Modest resources were provided to help Church members rebuild their wood-framed shelters and homes. This was not just a free handout. Members received training and performed the needed labor for themselves and then for others. One resulting blessing was that as members developed carpentry, plumbing, and other construction skills, they were able to secure meaningful work opportunities as nearby cities and communities began rebuilding. Caring for the poor and needy is a fundamental gospel doctrine and an essential element in the eternal plan of salvation. Prior to his mortal ministry, Jehovah declared, For the poor shall never cease out of the land. Therefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt open thine hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor and to thy needy, in thy land. In our day, caring for the poor and needy is one of four divinely appointed Church responsibilities that help individuals and families qualify for exaltation. Caring for the poor and needy contemplates both temporal and spiritual salvation. It includes the service of individual Church members as they personally care for the poor and needy, as well as formal Church welfare, which is administered through priesthood authority. Central to the Lord's plan for caring for the poor and needy is the law of the fast. 
The Lord has established the law of the fast and fast offerings to bless His people and to provide a way for them to serve those in need. As followers of the Savior, we have a personal responsibility to care for the poor and needy. Faithful Church members everywhere assist by fasting each month, abstaining from food and water for 24 hours, and then giving to the Church a financial fast offering equal to at least the value of the food they would have eaten. Isaiah's words should be prayerfully considered and taught in every home. Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. Isaiah then went on to list the wonderful blessings promised by the Lord to those who obey the law of the fast. He says, Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy rearward. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. And if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and thy darkness be as the noonday. And the Lord shall guide thee continually and satisfy thy soul in drought. Regarding this scripture, President Harold B. Lee had this to say, The tremendous blessings that come from fasting have been spelled out in every dispensation. And here the Lord is telling us through this great prophet why there is fasting and the blessings that come from fasting. If you analyze the 58th chapter of the book of Isaiah, you will find unraveled why the Lord wants us to pay fast offerings, why He wants us to fast. It's because by qualifying thus, we can call and the Lord can answer. We can cry, and the Lord will say, Here I am. President Lee adds, Do we ever want to be in a condition where we can call and He won't answer? We will cry in our distress and He won't be with us? I think it is time we are thinking about these fundamentals because these are the days that lie ahead when we are going to need more and more the blessings of the Lord when the judgments are poured out without mixture upon the whole earth. Our beloved prophet, President Thomas S. Monson, has shared his testimony of these principles, a testimony born of personal experience. He said, No member of the Church who has helped provide for those in need ever forgets or regrets the experience. Industry, thrift, self-reliance, and sharing with others are not new to us. Brethren, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are a covenant-making, commandment-keeping people. I cannot think of any law, any commandment, which, if kept faithfully, is easier to keep and which provides greater blessings than the law of the fast. When we fast and give an honest fast offering, we contribute to the Lord's storehouse what would have been expended on the cost of the meals. It does not require monetary sacrifice in excess of what would be expended normally. At the same time, we are promised the extraordinary blessings as previously noted. 
The law of a fast applies to all Church members. Even young children can be taught to fast, beginning with one meal and then two, as they are able to understand and physically keep the law of the fast. Husbands and wives, single members, youth, and children should begin the fast with prayer, giving gratitude for blessings in their lives while seeking the Lord's blessings and strength through the fast period. Complete fulfillment of the law of the fast occurs when the fast offering is made to the Lord's agent, the bishop. Bishops, you direct welfare in the ward. You have a divine mandate to seek out and care for the poor. With the support of the Relief Society President and Melchizedek Priesthood Quorum leaders, your goal is to help members help themselves and become self-reliant. You minister to the temporal and spiritual needs of members by carefully using fast offerings as a temporary support and as a supplement to extended family and community resources. As you prayerfully exercise priesthood keys and discernment in helping the poor and needy, you will come to know that the correct use of fast offerings is intended to support life, not lifestyle. Ironic Priesthood Quorum Presidents, you hold keys and have the power to administer in outward ordinances. You work with the bishop and instruct quorum members regarding their duties in the priesthood and in seeking out Church members to give them the opportunity to contribute to the fast. As Aaronic priesthood holders magnify their priesthood and extend this opportunity to all Church members, you frequently facilitate the promised blessings of the fast to those who may need them the most. You will witness that the spirit of caring for the poor and needy has the power to soften otherwise hardened hearts and blesses the lives of those who may infrequently attend Church. President Monson has said those bishops who organize their Aaronic priesthood quorums to participate in the collection of fast offerings will find increased success in this sacred responsibility. Bishops, remember that circumstances vary widely from one area to another and from country to country. Door-to-door contacting by Aaronic priesthood quorum members may not be practical in the region where you live. However, we invite you to prayerfully consider the Prophet's counsel and seek inspiration on appropriate ways in which the Aaronic priesthood holders in your wards can magnify their priesthood by participating in the collection of fast offerings. In chapter 27 of 3 Nephi, the risen Lord asked, What manner of men ought ye to be? He responded, Even as I am. As we take upon ourselves the name of Christ and strive to follow Him, we will receive His image in our countenance and become more like Him. Caring for the poor and needy is inherent in the ministry of the Savior. It is in everything He does. He reaches out to all and lifts us. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. I invite each of us to become more like the Savior by caring for the poor and needy, by faithfully keeping the law of the fast, and by contributing a generous fast offering. I humbly testify that faithfully caring for the poor and needy is a reflection of spiritual maturity and will bless both the giver and the receiver. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen.
My dear brethren, we are continually inspired by the personal example and priesthood service of President Thomas S. Monson. Recently, several deacons were asked, What do you admire most about President Monson? One deacon recalled how President Monson, as a child, gave his toys to needy friends. Another mentioned how President Monson cared for many of the widows in his ward. A third noted that he was called as an apostle at a very young age and has blessed people all around the world. Then one young man said, The thing I admire most about President Monson is his strong testimony. Indeed, we have all felt our prophet's special witness of the Savior Jesus Christ and his commitment to always follow the promptings of the Spirit. With each experience he shares, President Monson invites us to live the gospel more fully and to seek for and strengthen our own personal testimonies. Remember what he said from this pulpit just a few conferences ago. In order for us to be strong and to withstand all the forces pulling us in the wrong direction, we must have our own testimony, whether you are 12 or 112 or anywhere in between, you can know for yourself that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true." End quote. Although my message tonight is directed to those who are closer to 12 than 112, the principles I share apply to everyone. In response to President Monson's statement, I would ask, does each of us know for ourselves that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true? Can we say with, our, with confidence that our testimonies are truly our own? To quote President Monson again, I maintain that a strong testimony of our Savior and His gospel will protect you from the sin and evil all around you. If you do not already have a testimony of these things, do that which is necessary to obtain one. It is essential for you to have your own testimony, for the testimony of others will carry you only so far. Learning for ourselves that the restored gospel of Jesus Christ is true can be one of the greatest and most joyful experiences in life. We may have to begin by relying on the testimonies of others, saying, as the stripling warriors did, we do not doubt our mothers knew it. This is a good place to start, but we must build from there. To be strong in living the gospel, there is nothing more important than receiving and strengthening our own testimonies. We must be able to, to declare, as Alma did, I know these things of myself. And how do you suppose that I know of their surety, Alma continued? Behold, I say unto you, they are made known unto me by the Holy Spirit of God. Behold, I have fasted and prayed many days that I might know these things of myself. And now I do know of myself that they are true. Like Alma, Nephi also came to know the truth for himself. After listening to his father speak of his many spiritual experiences, Nephi wanted to know what his father knew. This was more than simple curiosity. It was something he hungered and thirsted after. Even though he was exceedingly young, he had a great desire to know the mysteries of God. He yearned to see and to hear and to know the things, these things by the power of the Holy Ghost. As Nephi sat pondering in his heart, he was carried away in the Spirit into an exceedingly high mountain, where he was asked, What desirest thou? His response was simple. 
I desire to know the things which my father saw. Because of his believing heart and his diligent efforts, Nephi was blessed with a marvelous experience. He received a witness of the forthcoming birth, life, and crucifixion of the Savior Jesus Christ. He saw the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and the restoration of the gospel in the last days, all as a result of his sincere desire to know for himself. Similar to Nephi, the Prophet Joseph Smith was also exceedingly young when his mind was caught up to serious reflection about spiritual truths. For Joseph, it was a time of great uneasiness, being surrounded by conflicting and confusing messages about religion. He wanted to know which Church was right. Inspired by these words in the Bible, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, he acted for himself to find an answer. On a beautiful morning in the spring of 1820, he entered a grove of trees and knelt in prayer. Because of his faith and because God had a special work for him to do, Joseph received a glorious vision of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and he learned for himself what he was to do. Do you see in Joseph's experience a pattern you could apply in gaining and strengthening your own testimony? Joseph allowed the scriptures to penetrate his heart. He pondered them deeply and applied them to his own situation. He then acted on what he had learned. The result was the glorious first vision and everything that came after it. This Church quite literally was founded on the principle that anyone, including a 14-year-old farm boy, can ask of God and receive an answer to his prayers. We often hear members of the Church say that their testimony of the gospel is their most precious and prized possession. It is a sacred gift from God that comes to us by the power of the Holy Ghost. It is the calm and wavering certainty we receive as we study, pray, and live the gospel. It is the feeling of the Holy Ghost bearing witness to our souls that what we are learning and doing is right. Some people speak of a testimony as if it were a light switch. It's either on or off. You either have a testimony or you do not. In reality, a testimony is more like a tree that passes through various stages of growth and development. Some of the tallest trees on earth are found in Redwood National Park in the western United States. When you stand at the base of these massive trees, it's amazing to think that each one grew from a tiny seed. So it is with our testimonies. Although they may begin with a single spiritual experience, they grow and develop over time through constant nourishment and frequent spiritual encounters. It's not surprising, then, that when the Prophet Alma explained how we develop a testimony, he spoke of a seed growing into, the, into a tree. If you give place, he said, that a seed may be planted in your heart, behold, if it be a true seed or a good seed, if you do not cast it out by your unbelief, it will begin to swell within your breasts, and when you feel these swelling motions, you will begin to say within yourself, it must needs be that this is a good seed, or that the word is good. For it beginneth to enlarge my soul, yea, it beginneth to enlighten my understanding, yea, it beginneth to be delicious 
to me. This is often how a testimony begins, with sacred, enlightening, assuring feelings that demonstrate to us that the Word of God is true. However, as wonderful as these feelings are, they are only the beginning. Your work to grow your testimony is not done any more than the work of growing a redwood tree is done when the first tiny sprout pokes out of the ground. If we ignore or neglect these early spiritual promptings, if we do not nurture them by continuing to study the scriptures and pray, and by seeking more experiences with the Spirit, our feelings will fade and our testimonies will diminish. As Alma put it, If you neglect the tree and take no thought for its nourishment, behold, it will not get any root. And when the heat of the sun cometh and scorcheth it, because it hath no root, it withers away, and ye pluck it up and cast it out. In most cases, our testimonies will grow the same way a tree grows, gradually, almost imperceptibly, as a result of our constant care and diligent efforts. But if you will nourish the word, Alma promised, yea, nourish the tree as it beginneth to grow, by your faith and with great diligence and with patience, looking forward to the fruit thereof, it shall take root, and behold, it shall be a tree springing up to everlasting life. My own testimony began as I studied and pondered the teachings found in the Book of Mormon. As I knelt down to ask God in humble prayer, the Holy Ghost testified to my soul that what I was reading was true. This early witness became the catalyst for my testimony of many other gospel truths. For as President Monson taught, when we know that the Book of Mormon is true, then it follows that Joseph Smith was indeed a prophet and that he saw God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. It also follows that the gospel was restored in these latter days through Joseph Smith including the restoration of both the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood." Since that day, I have had many sacred experiences with the Holy Ghost that have reaffirmed to me that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and that His restored gospel is true. With Alma, I can say with certainty that I know these things of myself. My young friends, now is the time and today is the day to learn or reaffirm for ourselves that the gospel is true. Each of us has an important work to do. To accomplish that work and to be protected from worldly influences that seem to be constantly looming, we must have the faith of Alma, Nephi, and young Joseph Smith to obtain and develop our own testimonies. Like the young deacon I spoke of earlier, I admire President Monson for his testimony. It is like a towering redwood, yet even President Monson's testimony had to grow and develop over time. We can come to know for ourselves, just as President Monson has, that Jesus Christ is the Savior and Redeemer of the world, that Joseph Smith is the prophet of the Restoration, including the restoration of the priesthood of God. We bear that holy priesthood. May we learn these things and know them for ourselves is my humble prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.